Welcome to New Books in Law. I'm Jim Vonderheit. Today's conversation is with the Dean of Harvard Law School, Martha Minow, about her new book, In Brown's Wake, Legacies of America's Educational Landmark. Plural noun legacies indicates the fact that Professor Minow's book is about other consequences, as well as the consequences for racial integration in the United States, of the famous Brown v. Board of Education Supreme Court decision. Robert L. Carter, legal assistant to Thurgood Marshall at the NAACP, said, looking back in 1979, that, quote, the basic postulate of our strategy and theory in Brown was that the elimination of enforced segregated education would necessarily result in equal education. This was the origin of the adage about public funding, that green follows white, that funding would flow to schools where there were white children. So in some ways, the plaintiffs in Brown v. Board of Education sought the racial integration of schools as a strategy rather than the ultimate goal. The ultimate aim was better opportunities for African Americans. And the shared American value of equality translated that project into the language of constitutional law. As Dean Minow's book, Dean Minow's book shows, other groups have done that same translation and had similar successes. Historians know that the court's adoption of the NAACP's language of equality in the unanimous 1954 opinion in Brown led to many famous unintended consequences, backlash over many years, the civil rights movement crystallizing, and backlashes against backlashes against backlashes over the following generations. But the book we're discussing today, In Brown's Wake, was born from the observation that history has not fully acknowledged other unintended consequences of the case that Carter helped to argue. In these other areas, the legacy of Brown is political success for reformers of all kinds who have linked their causes with the language of racial integration and made significant gains for other populations both in the U.S. and abroad. So the Brown decision is not only about race, Even if Carter and his colleagues were wrong about the flow of green in the United States, Dean Minow contends that Brown's status as a landmark decision is in no way exaggerated. Until now, in fact, much of its story has not yet been told. One note about today's interview, Professor Minow and I were talking over a bad phone connection. So her voice is not as clear as we would like in this podcast, but the interview is terrific, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Dean Minow. Thank you uh, for joining us here, and we're grateful for the opportunity to talk about In Brown's Wake, your new book, and uh, appreciate your taking the time. Thanks. Well, maybe before we talk about the book, you could um, tell us a little about yourself and your background, previous projects, and a little bit about things that led up to your start on the work of this book. Interested in uh, school reform and school e- equality questions, and indeed came to graduate school at uh, the Harvard School of uh, Education, Graduate School of Education, just as Boston was in the throes of school desegregation battles, uh, and continued to be involved in that work, both as a researcher and working uh, in advocacy settings, uh, and have continued that on and off. For 30 years, uh, and when the anniversary of Brown v. Board uh, arose, the 50th anniversary, uh, I joined 
in many of the panel discussions uh, in academic and other settings, and was struck by two things. One, how much of the conversation was focused on the failures of Brown, and secondly, how little attention was paid to the impact of Brown uh, beyond the, the context of race, and that's what led me to write the book. In your pr previous scholarship, Maybe you could say a little bit about the themes that uh, might have prefigured or not led up uh, to this particular topic. Have you got previous interests that connected in surprising ways, or has this been a, a recurring theme in all your work? Well, I think a little bit of both. So I, I've written several books uh, that deal with education and uh, equality and identity in, in, in various ways, but I also have another area of my own work that deals with international uh, ethnic and religious conflict and post-conflict uh, resolutions. And actually, this book reflects uh, both of those uh, strands of my work, uh, both the attention to schooling and identity on the one hand, and the also concerns about what happens to societies that are uh, really marked by sharp conflicts and sharp divisions between groups. And having done work as well as scholarship in communities following uh, genocide and mass crimes against humanity, uh, I have felt redoubled in my commitment to prevention and to exploring how the structure of something as basic as elementary schooling can contribute uh, either to peace or to conflict. I wonder about the disciplinary aspect of this. How do you think your work is different because you're a law professor? as opposed to a sociologist or a, a student of culture generally and conflict? Not entirely sure. I probably spend more time talking about uh, uh, courts and legislatures, but I, I uh, am often viewed within the legal academy as someone who's very interdisciplinary. So um, I'm sure someone outside my head would be better equipped to answer that question. <laughs> well, Brown is a, is a quintessential example of... Uh, courts taking positive action uh, and seeking to enact social change. Um, maybe you can tell us about the legacy of Brown uh, in the obvious sense first, and then we'll get into thinking about some of your chapters. Well, Brown versus Board of Education is probably the most famous decision of the United States Supreme Court, uh, and it did uh, produce a unanimous decision by that court in 
you were back to where we were in 1954 in terms of the numbers of blacks and whites who went to school together. And that, I think, is the large uh, measure, the reason why so many people um, talk about Brown as a disappointment. And at the same time, that doesn't really capture how much Brown succeeded in ending what was really a racial apartheid of, of officially mandated system of segregation, not only in schools, but uh, in private shopping uh, centers, uh, in, in, in swimming pools that were municipal uh, run, uh, in all kinds of settings. There were laws in some southern states that forbade blacks and whites from playing cards together. Um, separate drinking fountains, I think, is the uh, image that many people recall. And uh, Brown versus Board of Education ended all of that and uh, stimulated transformations in society that I think in no small measure helped to explain how uh, the United States could elect an African-American president. And the theme of uh, a lot of those transformations is equality of opportunity. Um, the mixing category you seem to suggest is separate. Do you want to say a little bit about that distinction that there's the, the goal of mixing on its own terms is one thing you explore. The goal of equality of opportunity more broadly um, seems distinct in some, from some perspectives. Uh, that assumption was actually proven false. Uh, not only 
the resistance to integration uh, is to blame, but also the different residential patterns that existed even in 1954 in the north, and certainly over time uh, have really grown even more persistent uh, with uh, residential segregation, separation, uh, reflecting private choices, but also public choices, uh, zoning decisions, where to place highways, where to build public housing. And that residential segregation has made this ideal of integration much more difficult to achieve in schools. Right, so the self-segregation has, has uh, stepped in, and it sounds like led to uh, a, a real uh, reversal, uh, movement backward on the, the mixing itself, the integration, which you say the lawyers saw as a means to some extent rather than an end. That is, that the equality of opportunity could only come when the races were mixed in the schools. The money would not flow. The uh, attention would not flow unless uh, the, ch- the children were mixed by race. Uh, do you think there's reason for hope that even now, even when there's been reversal in the mixing, there might still be equality of opportunity uh, nonetheless? Well, let me, let me take apart the question in a couple uh, of ways. Uh, Yes, the, the lawyers like Thurgood Marshall and uh, Jack Greenberg and others involved in the strategy did talk explicitly about uh, green follows white, right. the dollars would follow where the white students were. And in that sense, integration was a means, not uh, an end. But it would be wrong to suggest it was only a means. Uh, again, growing from the prior cases they had litigated dealing with higher education, uh, they quite explicitly talked about uh, social integration as a goal uh, in the struggle leading to Brown. And uh, only in 1974, when the Supreme Court actually uh, ruled that a remedy for demonstrated intentional segregation could stop at the borders of the district, that's the case of Milliken versus Bradley dealing with Detroit, did the court give a real green light uh, to people who wanted to make sure that they could send their kids to uh, largely white schools uh, by saying that the remedy for uh, segregated schooling could stop at the city borders, and that really gave a jump uh, to the movements uh, of people to the suburbs, a white flight movement. So uh, when you ask about prospects for the full-blown vision of integration right now when it comes to race, what's striking is that workplaces are much more integrated now racially than they were in things you focus on uh, as a section of your one of your chapters is the fact that Department of Defense schools have led the way 
uh, in providing good results on equality of opportunity across a number of lines. And it sounds like a, a good bit of that is attributable to the military culture where integration has been a fact for so long and leadership is not uh, split by race. to read about uh, and imagine the world maybe just as a dystopic vision, but the fact that the military orders parents, <laughs> simply orders them, if they're uh, part of the service, they have to go to parent-teacher conferences. It's hard to imagine uh, a United States in which parents are, are required by law to follow through in that kind of way, but it does suggest that there's some positive uh, piece there that uh, law could interact in a different way with communities. Uh, I don't know if that's imaginable to you at all, but um, well, it's certainly it's powerful. Something that's not quite as uh, coercive as you, you have described, but uh, uh, a policy by private employers to accommodate parents uh, who uh, want to attend their students' uh, uh, activities at schools and to be involved. Uh, and I can imagine uh, many, many private Right. Um, one reason I asked that question about uh, coercion 
which is obviously out of place in some ways, is to pivot toward asking you about the model you have in mind of the relationship between law and society as you worked on this book and, and brought together so much knowledge uh, to address the question of Brown's legacy. Uh, do you see, this, in a way, the Supreme Court opinion caused many things to happen, but it's also the case that uh, society moves in its own glacial ways. Do you think it's safe to consider the legal edicts as having caused a lot of the things you describe, for example, in terms of residential self-segregation? school district and create school districts where there's many fewer black people and then you won't have integration to worry about. Uh, do you think that families saw that legal shift happening and the societal shift was in part driven by it or is it more vice versa? So these um, pieces surely have a lot of different causes, but it's it's really interesting to think about the way legal shifts actually drive that sort of thing. interested in pro- 
parochial schools uh, and the, the voucher movement and uh, the treatment of religion in schools. And that combination of law, politics, and social movement really was forged uh, by uh, Brown versus Board of Education, uh, both the actions leading up to it, the actions after it, and it became a paradigm uh, copied, uh, emulated uh, by people who agreed with it and who disagreed with it in, in many of these other areas. Really interesting pieces of the book uh, touch on that irony that often uh, political forces that might have might have been opposed to Brown or might still be opposed to Brown use the same ideas and the same rhetoric. Uh, I wonder if you could give us an example about that uh, reversal, maybe the, the school choice, for example. The example is the movement for school vouchers, and it's complicated to say exactly um, whether the advocates for vouchers uh, agree or disagree with Brown. I think it's a complicated uh, question. Certainly many of the people who favor the use of public dollars to allow parents to select private schools uh, include African Americans who are seeking uh, better educational opportunities for their uh, own children and in that sense uh, could claim direct legacy to the NAACP lawyers' strategy before Brown of seeking equal financial resources uh, regardless of the race of the student. But yes, the specific uh, multi-year, indeed decades-long struggle to uh, permit uh, school vouchers, the use of public dollars to go to private schools, particularly to private religious schools, uh, was quite consciously crafted by individuals uh, interested in how Brown and the NAACP uh, proceeded uh, and used the strategies of uh, litigation uh, and used the rhetoric of equal opportunity, uh, neutrality. Clint Bullock being uh, an architect of that movement. Uh, Michael McConnell, a distinguished uh, law professor, later a judge, uh, also contributing uh, with his own scholarship, some of it uh, reflecting his deep knowledge of the 14th Amendment and of Brown, and some of it uh, developing a new theory of the Establishment Clause that actually paved the way for the Supreme Court's decision, ultimately approving the use of vouchers even in religious schools. So initially, you, as you say, the, the voucher movement seemed to be uh, casting itself as exit strategies for well-off white children, but to reverse the rhetoric and to reverse the strategy, uh, the voucher proponents treated it the other way as an opportunity for poor and uh, students of color. Well, as I, as I tried to say, it's a little more complicated than that. So voucher supporters include African-American parents and no, poor parents. So I think it's more complicated than that. Uh, and it also uh, has included many people who are Catholics and, and Jews who want to find a way to uh, avoid what they consider to be a double uh, tax uh, where uh, the parents have to pay for the religious schooling and also are taxed to pay for public education. But I think that the, um, uh, the, the borrowing of the pattern developed by Brian Brown was uh, probably a really a huge surprise to people who had worked in the uh, school desegregation, racial desegregation context, because at the time of Brown and the first 20 years following Brown, the uh, arguments for um, private schools 
content vouchers at that time were very much made by people who were resisting integration. There's a lot of terrific examples along these these lines and these steps. I wonder if you want to say something as well about the uh, more recent decision that used uh, reached back to Brown uh, and insisted that the way that uh, an integration plan, excuse me, a, a district's voluntary plan to promote racial mixing uh, was barred because it was race conscious. You're, you have some harsh words for that decision um, as oversimplifying and, and pushing colorblindness, uh, but it does seem to appropriate some of Brown's uh, language. Do you, do you like, characterize that correctly? Three years after Brown was Board of Education in 2007, the Supreme Court ruled in a case uh, rising from uh, Seattle, Washington, and Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, the, the court ruled that even when elected school boards have repeatedly uh, been reelected uh, in and supported the use of race as a one measure to help achieve voluntary integration, even where it's a democratic process with that goal that was uh, absolutely endorsed by Brown, that violated the Constitution. And the court reasoned it violated the Constitution because uh, it used the um, racial characteristic of the students in a circumstance that the court reasoned was not narrowly tailored enough to justify this uh, this. The court, um, in that sense, was really reflecting as much as anything the debates over affirmative action that have arisen in the intervening time. So the use of race uh, as a characteristic in selecting students for uh, selective colleges and universities and sought-after jobs um, has uh, become very, very controversial, uh, and the Supreme Court has set great limits on it. And to use those cases and the focus on the uh, importance of neutrality um, and the restriction on the use ever of racial categorizations to reach a result that would have surprised uh, anybody on the court at the time of Brown versus Board of Education. And indeed, Justice Stevens wrote a dissent in that case, Parents Involved, and said that the result in the case would have surprised anyone who joined the court when he did in the 1970s. What's important to note about this case, parents involved, is that it actually um, is, is only four members of the court, not a majority, who uh, believe that such a use of uh, racial uh, classification should never be used or almost never be used, uh, even uh, to achieve school desegregation. And there are five members of the court who said it often could be used. Um, uh, the fifth member who made the crucial vote striking down the plans in that case, Justice Kennedy, um, felt that the justification was not demonstrated in those particular circumstances, but his opinion goes on at great length to argue that diversity is itself a compelling reason justifying the use of race and that there could be many other strategies to pursue voluntary integration. This has left uh, school systems around the country trying to figure out uh, in the intervening four years and going forward what is permitted and what is not. And it's a complicated story. It certainly does reflect a turn 
turn away from the vision of integration that Brown, that Brown itself uh, embraced. This seems a good time to ask about uh, your work in your, in your other role as dean of Harvard Law School. This is something I'm sure you think about quite a lot as you put together the entering class and your your uh, process there. Also, of course, in uh, creating and defending overall policies uh, in which diversity is at stake. Is it is are these same issues uh, and the legal ramifications and the Supreme Court's current composition on your mind as you do that work? education, uh, diversity is a compelling interest, and uh, we, like uh, every other uh, major school that I know, believe that as well, that the classroom is enriched when students bring different kinds of backgrounds and experiences and perspectives, and we spend a lot of time uh, composing a class to make sure that there's quite a, a many, many degrees of uh, diversity, ideological, uh, life experience, geographic, Court's suggestion that in 25 years this may no longer be a compelling interest. Race, that is, consciousness of race, may need to, uh, in some legal way, fade out of admissions committee's decisions. Um, we'll wait and see. <laughs> okay. Um, it's, it's a remarkable statement from the court about the future that that, that kind of prediction kicks in. It certainly also resonates with. Uh, Justice Thomas's extraordinary uh, frustration with Yale Law School and the way that he felt the cloud was over his experience there because he was African-American. Um, but we'll put that role, uh, the higher education issue, to the side and return to schools. What's so striking, though, is the um, difference between those two contexts. So the question of the allocation of scarce seats in uh, extremely selective institutions is very different than the question of student assignment to public schools where every student has a place. And that's something that the court neglected in its parent-involved decision, the majority. It treated these as if they were all the same, whereas in the, the public school system, there's no question that every student will have an opportunity, and the student assignment uh, is important to make sure that those opportunities are equal. Entirely different question, how to allocate scarce seats. Right. I was really interested by the alternative possibility, which doesn't directly address racial mixing, but apparently there's a five to four split now on whether socioeconomic status is a fair way to sort and assign students, uh, and that is okay now, according to the Supreme Court. Does that seem to you a decent proxy for, for racial mixing and some of the things Brown was about? Well, the court did it by a five to four vote some time ago, reject the claim that classification uh, based on socioeconomic status deserves the same kind of heightened scrutiny that the court gives to classifications based on race with the periodical effect that allows school systems to assign students based on their 
parents' uh, economic status. Uh, no problem doing that. And many school systems do that, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts uh, among them. Uh, and since there is a high correlation between socioeconomic status and race, that often can produce some racial uh, integration in schools. Yeah, I'm sorry I had the law backwards on that. Um, it is. It does seem a compelling policy uh, possibility, uh, and there's research about it. I wonder where you come down in, ter in terms of thinking, if every school district did that, how much of the vision of Brown might be achieved in using socioeconomic status as a proxy? It, it very much depends on what the composition is of the community, whether it would produce racial integration. Quite apart from racial integration, I do think socioeconomic integration can have a value in and of itself. So if that if the court went the other way, though, these sorts of things could be imposed, <laughs> sort of, right? If that 5-4 split came the other way such that heightened scrutiny was applied to socioeconomic status, then there would be judge-made remedies uh, basically about school district zoning, right, that neighborhoods would need to share their resources more fairly. I wonder if that would be a positive development or not. The funding issue is a huge issue, it seems, the funding by neighborhood. Well, there, there really now are, 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 you're really raising two different questions because the, the assignment of students to schools based on their parents' socioeconomic status is something that is currently permitted, and you're suggesting maybe if the court changed its view, it wouldn't be permitted. The decision at issue in the Rodriguez case dealt not with the assignment of students to schools, but instead with the funding scheme itself. Right. Uh, and on the funding scheme itself, yes, I do believe that society would be better off and students would be better off if there were better ways to fund schools than based on the property taxes that allow for local communities uh, to have such disparate expenditure on students. In some states, a variation of 20 percent uh, or 20 times, some one district next to another one will spend 20 times on a student's education as another. And that's a, that's a very sad situation if we think that education should be a basic opportunity for all students. Do you think uh, a legal strategy is the right way to pursue the, that funding scheme question, that uh, winning that case, the Rodriguez outcome going the other way, would lead to uh, a good implementation? I think as my whole book suggests, uh, a legal strategy can never uh, succeed if it's separated from politics and uh, social efforts. Good. I mean, that's that's sort of what I was hoping to get to as we came. That is the theme throughout the book, and I think that would be true in this area as in any other area. Very good. It's a very powerful uh, set of chapters and a very powerful set of explorations of the politics as drivers of the law, and that interconnection is really interesting. I wonder if you want to say anything about the other populations, for example, the disabled who have who've drawn on Brown in achieving more equality of opportunity in the schools? You know, it really is, I think, a major uh, transformation uh, when you think about uh, what the situation was for students with disabilities, some of them mild, some of them severe, uh, prior to 1970. It was very routine for school systems to exclude them entirely or to put them in uh, a separate class and not give them uh, the same kinds of educational materials or curriculum that was available to the other students. 
and to really put them in a Kantariah status, uh, very much uh, copying Brown. The advocates brought lawsuits challenging those practices. Those lawsuits inspired Congress as well as state legislatures to enact legislation. And the uh, Individuals with Disability Education Act has produced transformations in terms of the opportunities for students. There do remain ongoing questions about how much uh, uh, the education for students with severe disabilities should be literally in the same classroom with other students. And this legislation is quite nuanced about that and doesn't mandate it and calls for an appropriate education. Uh, but uh, even that uh, is an extraordinary uh, implementation of a vision of equality that really did not exist uh, prior to Brown versus Board of Education. And you've got a chapter also on the international repercussions, which is a really compelling read as well. Uh, the, this document created in 1954 really reverberated around the globe. It is striking uh, to see Brown cited directly in uh, the Constitutional Court of South Africa, uh, at Brown uh, discussed uh, by people in Northern Ireland, uh, Brown inspiring litigation in the European Court of Human Rights, on behalf of Roma children, children who are uh, sometimes described as gypsies. Uh, and yes, I think that the whole model of uh, using courts for social change, particularly pursuing educational equality, piloted by Brown, has inspired uh, a similar movement all around the world. Again, always twinned with the political aspect as well. And that seems like a, a theme that's worth underscoring again. Um, so I, I appreciate your uh, reiterating that. Um, is there are there other things that other lessons that can be drawn for uh, a law student like me uh, thinking about entering and, and being involved with society in a couple of years? Um, it sounds as if you're interested in taking a very in, in the large view and the way that the uh, legal practices need to be entwined with political practices. I do think that's a good lesson to draw. Uh, I think another lesson to draw is pay attention to history. Um, there is a risk of people looking at an issue uh, today without any sense of where it came from. Uh, I think another uh, lesson is that um, actually life is complicated. So even in the example of the great successes for students with disabilities that we were discussing a moment ago, important to see that there have been uh, abuses uh, in the use of the rights for disabled students in the sense that uh, there's now new forms of racial segregation with uh, particularly black boys often being identified as having disabilities and sent to separate classes uh, so that one needs to be vigilant in implementing any kind of remedy for a past harm because there can be new harms uh, consciously or unconsciously uh, in the in the new uh, phase of implementation. I definitely get the sense that the, the issue is full of paradoxes um, because individual treatment, individual educational best outcomes are sort of always the goal, but policy needs to be set with groups in mind. So the, the same dilemma can arise with regard to gender, and many people uh, in the women's movement look to Brown as a way to challenge the exclusion of girls 
from uh, the selective all-boys public schools. And that failed uh, in the Supreme Court of the United States, so it succeeded in state courts. And as a result, it is perfectly constitutional right now to have single-sex education under circumstances where there are comparable opportunities for students of each gender. Uh, and uh, for some students, that might be a great opportunity, and for other students, it may not. And so you're quite right. Uh, there's an ongoing challenge to figure out how to advance individual uh, opportunity and at the same time attend to the risk of stigma and inequality on the basis of group membership. Well said. Thank you. Well, we've taken a good um, piece of your day. I really appreciate your spending time with us. Is there anything that we uh, you'd like to add about the book? I certainly enjoyed making my way through it. Well, it's a delight to talk with you about it, and uh, it was a, a really an utterly fascinating experience to work on this book. Uh, and uh, I also enjoyed thinking about social science and the way that social scientists became expert witnesses in Brown, and that really launched a whole new relationship between law and social science. I became very interested in the treatment of American Indians and their education, and also Native Hawaiians. Uh, so it's a book uh, that I think uh, actually just opens up doors, and I hope others will follow uh, through uh, in, in walking through those doors, doing more research and more advocacy in each of those areas. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Dean Minow, for spending time talking talk with me today. I really appreciate it. Once again, the book is In Brown's Wake. Thank you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to you in your studies. Thanks. And thank you for joining us for New Books in Law. I'm Jim Vonderheit, your host. And my guest today was Dean Martha Minow of Harvard Law School. We were discussing her book, In Brown's Wake, Legacies of America's Educational Landmark. Thanks for being with us. Have a great month, and we'll be back with another book then.